Having kids is awesome, but raising them can be difficult and filled with ups and downs. Challenges are seemingly everywhere, whether they're medical, social, financial, cultural, or otherwise. And sometimes the downs threaten to drown out the ups. In short, having kids is risky. We get it. We're parents too. But we're also pediatric emergency doctors. We have unique insight into risks and how to keep them in perspective. Welcome to Cloudy with a Risk of Children. Join us as we explore the challenges and the fun of raising healthy children. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Dr. Edward Luss. My sidekick, Dr. Phil, is away today, uh, tackling a glacier somewhere, I think. Uh, those clips you just heard are drawn from a New York Times piece featuring Dr. Paul Ehrlich, a Stanford prof who became quite famous in the late 1960s for his dire pronouncements that the world was overburdened with people and that we were facing mass starvation and much suffering unless we got our population numbers under control. And uh, this was at a time when the global population was 3.5 billion people. Uh, Dr. Ehrlich and the many people who jumped on his bandwagon uh, advocated very strongly for what they called zero population growth. On the very first page of the book he wrote back then called The Population Bomb, he stated that the battle to feed all of humanity is over. He used the quaint phrase, the stork has passed the plow, and predicted that hundreds of millions of people were going to starve to death. He and his many disciples advocated for a whole suite of policy initiatives designed to reduce fertility and uh, family planning initiatives and so on. They even held out the possibility that coercive measures like compulsory sterilizations might be needed. One of the hysterical comments made in the newspapers of that day read, freedom to procreate equals freedom to starve children. Well, as we all know, Dr. Ehrlich was grandly wrong. Global population skyrocketed. We're now just past 8 billion people on the planet. Uh, yet we've never been more well-fed than we are today. But that rate of growth won't continue, uh, as it turns out. Why? Because people have stopped having kids. Well, they're still having kids, but they're having far fewer of them. And it's really a global phenomenon. And joined to that, the world's people are living far longer than ever before. So the entire demographic of the world is changing and changing very, very quickly. And so on our podcast today, we want to discuss that and what that will mean for our kids and for kids born in five years, in 10 years, uh, 20 years, 50 years from now, what will the world look like? 
to tackle that topic, we are joined today by Daryl Bricker, who, along with Global Mail columnist John Ibsen, co-authored a book on this important topic called Empty Planet. And it looks at how did we get here and the reasons why we are having fewer kids and what the implications of that are for the future and, of course, especially uh, for our children. I'll be right back with that conversation with Daryl. All right, Daryl Bricker is Chief Executive Officer of Ipsos Public Affairs, the world's leading social and opinion research firm. Prior to joining Ipsos, Daryl was Director of Public Opinion Research in the Office of Canadian Prime Minister Brian Mulroney. He holds a PhD in political science from Carleton University, and he is a co-author with John Ibbotson of a number of books, including The Big Shift, The Seismic Change in Canadian Politics, Business and Culture, and What It Means for Our Future, and their latest bestseller, Empty Planet, The Shock of Global Population Decline, which is the book we're going to discuss on the show today. Welcome, Daryl. Well, thanks for having me on, Ed. So uh, just to give a, you a bit of background on our podcast, uh, you may have looked into it a, a little bit, but really the premise of our show, the uh, reason we launched it is because of the increasing perception by parents of risk for their children. So ironically, as families get smaller and we focus more attention on our kids, the perceived dangers that come along with raising those kids, the risks that come with raising those kids seem greater. And uh, this uh, phenomenon of shrinking family size is really what your book uh, speaks to. Isn't that right, Daryl? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, it's it's been a trend that's really developed in North America since the mid-60s. Uh, uh, it's developed, started to develop a bit earlier in some other countries. But yeah, for a place like Canada, it's really something that started in the mid-60s. But it's a global phenomenon, as you lay out in really very exhaustive detail in your book. I think it's one of the most well-researched books I've read in quite some time. Oh, very kind of you to say that. Now, I should tell your listeners, if they think they're going to be overwhelmed with it, it's all in the footnotes. In fact, the the way that John and I wrote the book uh, was to not put any charts or graphs in it. I think there's one graph that the or chart that the uh, the publisher insisted on. Uh, but it's really more like a travelogue. It's taking the basic issue that you just mentioned and going around the world and seeing what's going on. And that, that's basically what the book is. It's uh, it's it's uh, not written in a heavy scientific fashion. It's it's written in more of a, I would say, accessible storytelling kind of way. And the reason was we wrote it that way was we wanted a lot of people to engage with the material. And so far, I think uh, our success has proven that we were right. I think you are right. I found it very readable, and I loved the way they um, stories sprung forth from each of the countries that you visited and you told or you related this phenomenon, but couched in local culture and local norms and that sort of thing. But what's undeniable is that this trend really is circling the globe and the areas where this hasn't yet taken a firm root. There's plenty of data to suggest that the same sort of thing will be happening there too, in, in Africa, for instance. Yeah, well, if the past is prologue, I mean, that's basically what we're going to see. It's just a matter of when it starts and how fast the descent will be. Uh, in some places, it started quite a while ago. It started, you know, at the, the turn of the last century. Uh, in uh, North America, it's something that started more recently post the baby boom. Uh, in places like Latin America, it started 
probably back in about the 19 late 1960s early 1970s but it's it's happened at a very very rapid pace and it's the same thing is happening in asia i mean uh predictions are now and i think pretty reliable predictions that uh, china is going to lose half of its population in the space of the next 80 years that's an incredible, incredible change in global population. So just as fast as we went up, so we went from 2.5 billion people in 1950 to about 8 billion people today, which is huge. I mean, everything prior to 1950 only got us to 2.5 billion people. And even though we spent an excessive amount of time talking about the history of what happened before that, it only got us to that number. Between then and today, we, we went up to 8 billion people. We're going to reach somewhere... Uh, short of 9 billion people uh, um, in, the, in the space of the next uh, probably 20 years. And then from there, we start the decline. And the decline could be a very precipitous, like the one that we saw on the increase side, you, you go up the mountain one way and then you come down the mountain in the in, in in basically the same kind of way. But this time we'll be doing it in the dark. So let's just circle back to that for a second, uh, to your comments around how we got to where we are now with the rapid increase in population, because uh, what's that old phrase, uh, Daryl? You know, for most of human history, life was nasty, brutish, and short. And we took yeah, a long Thomas time. Hobbes. Thomas, Thomas Hobbes. Thomas Hobbes. That's right. So yeah. we took a long time to get to where we are. Um, so what what are the reasons behind the population explosion that got us to where we are, or to where we were, perhaps even ten or twenty years ago? Well, I think one of the things was uh, just improvements in diet. Um, and improvements in um, in uh, healthcare, people were just starting to live longer. I mean, most of the growth that we're now seeing in our population isn't really coming from tons and tons and tons of babies coming into the population. It's just basically as a result of people not dying as fast as they used to. The average Canadian back in the 1920s died around the age of 57. Right. Now it's about 82. So there's a big chunk of that. But also we had lots and lots and lots of babies born uh, in the in the 1950s going into the 19 or early 1960s. And then we had a wall and it started to come down. And the reason was you can talk about anything you, uh, you know, cultural that is related to that. We started to uh, get really enthralled with the idea of being able to afford to have bigger families. We thought having bigger families was a good thing. Um, uh, people uh, in, in terms of their own personal lives, they got married early and yeah. they started having kids early. And as a result of that, they just had bigger families. So a lot of it was basically cultural. Yeah. And then we hit a wall in the early 1960s in which it completely reversed itself. The uh, fact is that as physicians, you know, in my sandbox, we tend to think fairly highly of ourselves. It's fair to say. And so when we look at the increased lifespan, we do tend to take uh, some credit uh, for medical advance. But the truth actually is, as you pointed out, the reason for longer lifespans is really down to better nutrition and better public hygiene, sanitation, yep. and so on. Certainly, healthcare plays a role. We have better medicines and vaccines and so on. It plays some role. But the other things that you mentioned, you know, uh, more uh, efficient agricultural production and better food supply and that sort of thing, all of these things factor in. Um, but you know, that aside, with the population growth, there were concerns more than once historically around the humans reproducing so quickly that we would outstrip the resources that the world had to offer. And I think already back uh, at the turn of the 19th century, there was a guy named Malthus, Thomas Malthus, if I'm correct, yep. the, the whole Malthusian principle that unless we figured out some way to hold ourselves in check, 
that we would endure mass starvation. And then someone, I think in the 1960s, late 1960s, took that same idea and wrote a book called The Population Bomb. And they were both wrong. Uh, Malthus was wrong. Uh, he didn't realize the revolution that was taking place in agriculture and the ability to uh, produce food at a, at a much higher rate than, than the UK, England at the time, because that's what he was writing about, was able to produce. Um, and uh, uh, Paul Ehrlich, the guy who wrote the book called The Population Bomb, I mean, we should be fighting in the early mid to mid 1980s, we should have been fighting in the streets over the last scrap of food. Well, that didn't happen. That doesn't mean that there aren't famines that happen in the world. That doesn't mean that uh, there aren't uh, issues that relate to overpopulation in certain parts of the world where, uh, you know, better population control will probably be beneficial, but it's not really related to the ability to produce food. Most of the food, most of the famines that, that happen in the world today, almost all of them are not a, a product of people being incapable of producing food. Uh, the, the real reason for it is politics. It's civil war, it's civil strife, it's people using food as a weapon. There's all sorts of reasons for it, but they usually involve human intervention, not because uh, we, we're incapable of producing the food that we need. Yeah, absolutely. So we figured out uh, pretty well how to house all of these people in general and how to feed them all. And the rates of poverty around the world have plummeted. The rates of starvation with blips here and there in generally have gone dramatically down. And so the conventional wisdom, therefore, in recent decades has been that we've hit higher and higher numbers. And people talk about hitting 11 billion, 30 billion. You'll see reports of 70 billion people, you know, and completely who said that? that's, that's completely nuts. So you, you can find just about anything in the recesses of the internet these days, as you know, Daryl. Um, but you argue that, uh, you know, as you alluded to earlier, that 8 billion maybe, or a bit beyond 8 billion, maybe as high as we'll ever see. And in your book, I think your words are conventional wisdom isn't very wise at all. What do you really mean by that? Well, it's just kind of a, a, a restatement of a quote from uh, uh, from uh, Mark Twain, which is, it's not the things that you don't know that get you into the trouble. It's the things that you know for sure that are wrong yeah. that do. Yeah. And then I also roll in another quote by somebody by the name of uh, Thomas Huxley, who was a lot of Thomases here this morning, uh, but who was the, uh, I believe he was the uncle or the, the father of Aldous Huxley, who wrote Brave New World, who said, you know, the great tragedy of science is the killing of a beautiful hypothesis with an ugly fact. So <laughs> what, what we did basically in, in Empty Planet was we went around the world and we tested hypotheses. And guess what? A lot of them were killed by facts. And this idea that the world global population is exploding beyond our ability to, to maintain it is just simply fantasy. Yeah, that's uh, and- not the case. Yeah, and and really one of the key themes of your book uh, is the process of widespread urbanization where people are moving en masse to cities. And I think the way you put it is essentially that as people move to cities and they started having families in cities, the kids that they have in cities are less assets as they would be when they're workers on the family farm. They become liabilities in the city where it's simply an expense to house them, to clothe them, and to feed them, to educate them. You know, that's the economically rational argument. I mean, kids on the farm were always seen as uh, economic contributors to a family. They weren't, you know, people, little people that we raise to uh, a level that, uh, you know, later in life, they may be contributors to a family unit, but probably contributors to their own family unit as opposed to the household in which they were born in. Um, but the other thing was infant mortality in, in rural areas tends to be much higher than it is in uh, than it is in urban areas. So as a result of that, what happens is that uh, people tend to have more kids because it's just, it's just, a, it's just an economically rational thing to do. 
Uh, but that's yeah. not the main reason I think that urbanization leads to uh, people having fewer kids. I think the main reason is because women go through a transition in their lives, which says, you know what, another life is possible for me than the one that my grandmother lived, or maybe even my mother lived, in which I can have more economic independence, I can have my own income, I can make more of the decisions about what my life is going to be. So I'm going to get an education, I'm going to participate in the economy, and all of those things require me to delay a combination of family formation, getting married if they decide to get married, and more importantly to, to this conversation, I can delay starting my family. The thing that they don't take into account, and you're a physician so you would know this, is the longer you wait, the harder that it is. Yeah. And uh, you know, back in 1960, when we were at the peak of our, our, uh, our, our fertility in, in Canada, the average Canadian woman had four kids in their lifetime. They got, mar they got married early, around the age of 21, started their family really early, and they had four kids. Now, the average Canadian woman, if she gets married at all, gets married around the age of 30, starts her family uh, in her early 30s. If she has one kid, that's probably about average yeah. uh, and very fortunate if they're able to have two. And that's either through decision or, or biology. Yeah. Uh, the, problem, the problem in all of this, uh, Ed, is that, uh, you know, we only produce children the old fashioned way, really, still. And, and biology works against waiting. So. Right. Um, you create a situation and even when you decide you want to have kids, it becomes hard. I mean, the Pew Foundation did a really interesting study in the United States, it's not Canada, but I mean, culturally pretty similar. And the, the major reasons people don't have kids and the ones that are usually put up as the major reasons actually aren't. Uh, the ones that are the major reasons are, I just don't want them or I can't have them Yeah, physically. Uh, so, uh, you know, we get to financial reasons kind of later down the list, but the big reasons are I either don't want them or I can't have them. And those yeah. two things are somewhat linked. Sure. And, and part of the don't want them, of course, is the, what you just mentioned, the, um, prospect of how expensive having children has become. And ironically, the wealthier we become in the world, the wealthier we are, the less we feel like we can afford kids. Well, you know, the, the thought experiment I, I do on this one is because I always get people coming. <laughs> I'm not having my, my two favorite are the expense ones, which is so if I made it for you, would you have them? And the end that goes, uh, uh, OK, well, maybe some will say yes. Yeah. An awful lot. Uh, there's a bit of pause for thought. And the other one is uh, because I think, you know, climate change is dooming us all to the future. Having kids is and population growth is the reason that uh, I'm not having kids. And it's like, oh, OK, really? So if we solve climate change, would you have kids? Yeah. And the answer is uh, maybe. Maybe, I don't know. Uh, but the, the truth is, and, and you know, I, I like to make this point, and for the people who are listening to this podcast, you know, if everybody makes that decision, humanity goes away in 100 years. Right. Which is good for the planet, the, arguably. Sure. And it was uh, so the planet was wonderful when the dinosaurs roamed the earth. But I yeah. mean, you, th those are value judgments. Um, sure. And I, and I don't object to people making them. You, uh, my view of, of, uh, of uh, family formation is really that it's uh, in, in having children is really it's a very personal choice. Yeah. Um, and I don't criticize people who don't have them. I don't criticize people who have lots of kids. I mean, yeah. these are personal family choices as long as they are. They are choices. But um, one of the things that we have to get back on track is the idea that having children is actually a good thing. Right. Having, having a family is a good thing. Yeah. It's good, not just for you and your psychological well-being and for the community. It's good. It's good for the planet too. We don't want to disappear as a species. 
Yeah. So exactly. somebody has to have kids. So what are you going to do? Outsource it to other people or are you going to participate? And like I said, I'm not critical of anybody who decides that, but don't be critical on the other hand, if people say, you know what, I've decided I want to stay home and have three kids. Yeah, exactly. Good. Glad some, glad somebody's doing it. Yeah. And, and of course uh, we kind of skipped over this a bit, but with the urbanization and increasing education and so on, that occurred in lockstep with widespread access to means of contraception mm -hmm. uh, so that people are able to plan their families down to, you know, microscopically in microscopic detail, really compared with any other era in human history. Yeah. I, but I would say that birth control is an intervening variable. You remember your science, uh, your science is, uh, it's not, it's not a causal variable. It's an intervening variable. Right. I think that really happened was that it corresponded with a change in culture. And the change in culture was that women were deciding increasingly that they wanted to have more of an independent, uh, they had more independent decision-making about their uh, uh their their how they were going to live their lives and, and a big part of that was the number of kids that they were going to have and contraception was just a means to it was just facilitated that it didn't cause it yeah exactly you know one of one of the phrases that uh, i'll use with people when i talk about this sort of issue is that it's not as if people have stopped engaging in the act so to speak but you know the act of procreation but procreation really has become to a large extent has become recreation But we're going to have fewer children supporting a graying population. In fact, we're seeing that in some countries around the world already. Yeah, and this is one of the big challenges that's associated with coming down the hill, as I said before. Um, and it's the aging of the population. And really, nobody's talking about it to any significant degree. I mean, one of the, uh, the issues that I think we're going to be facing in a really large way um, in not, uh, you know, 50 years and like, uh, we're starting into it right now is dealing with dementia. I mean, uh, it, it's absolutely correlated with aging. The average Canadian today is 42 years old. Yeah. Back in the early 1960s, the average Canadian was in their, their early twenties. We're now 42. Yeah. Um, so the entire global baby boom, which includes Canada is going to be the age of 65 and 2030. So we're talking seven years away. Yeah. So there's going to be a massive escalation in dealing with people who have dementia. So the problem, of course, with people with dementia is uh, it doesn't kill you right away. There's a lot of long-term care implications for that. And uh, nobody's really set up to deal with it. We're barely talking about it. And I'm just talking about one condition that's related to aging. I don't know what it's like in Toronto, Daryl, but I'll say to my kids sometimes, so I have teenagers and we'll drive around and I will see yet another care home being built on the corner of whatever block we happen to be driving through. So it seems as if there is, as I refer to them sometimes, a warehouse for old people popping up every time you turn around. And all of that requires personnel. All of that requires caregivers. All of that requires money. As you point out, huge looming time bomb with regard to how are we going to deal with just that one issue alone, not to mention all of the others. But one of the things you... And the thing I find really interesting is that you hold up North America and particularly Canada as an example of a country where it's going to be somewhat different. The population of Canada actually is expected to grow by 2100 by some estimates to be 100 million people. You know, we're, we're, we're taking in, I think, currently somewhere between 300, 350,000 people per year by, go some, project, by some projections go to go even higher. 
currently to this year it's like 500,000 500,000 uh, people yeah those are the targets and 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 some and those are the ones that are coming in regularly we're not even counting irregular migrants um and uh yeah it's 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 a kind of a complicated uh um way of looking at population because there are so many different categories but yeah uh, the the bottom line on all of it is that uh, canada would be in a situation in which it was teetering on population decline if it wasn't for immigration and the reason be is because our birth rate just for your listeners is uh, at 1.4 so just to have a replacement rate just to replace the number of people who are dying every year in a country you need a, a fertility rate or a birth rate of about 2.1 which is enough to replace you enough to replace your partner and a little bit extra for kids who don't grow into adulthood so it needs to be 2.1. Last year uh, was the lowest fertility rate we've recorded in Canadian history at 1.4. We're way short of replacement rate. In fact, we're closer to Japan than right. we are to our own historic birth rate. And Japan is losing about 650,000 people from its population every year. So uh, you, you can do it with immigration. And Canada has been so far successful doing that. But one of the things that we know is immigration is incredibly politically disruptive in many countries. Canada has been able to avoid it. I would say in the province of Quebec, you're seeing more of a reaction to immigration, typical to what you see in other parts of the world in which the cultural change that's associated with, uh, with people coming in from the non-dominant culture is something that people push back against. Um, uh, we've been lucky so far in Canada that we haven't seen it too much of it in Canada outside of the province of Quebec. But the, the new problem that's going to emerge around this is not going to be cultural. The new problem that's going to emerge around this is one that you alluded to before, which is the um, competition with immigration, immigrants for, for work. But then the other part of this is the, uh, the effect that this house has on the cost of housing. Right. And one of the things that we know due to this great urbanization, I mean, Canada, 82% of us live in a, in an urban area or a, a town bigger than a thousand. Um, and 40% of us live in just four places, you got Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, and Calgary. It's all, that's a big chunk of us. Uh, the competition for housing now is huge. And the reason uh, that it's, we have such competition. Uh, you know, we can talk about housing supply. That's, you know, obviously a big factor. But the other part is that older people don't behave the way that we assume they're going to behave in the housing market, which is that they're going to reach a certain age, they're going to cash out, they're going to take their equity, and they're going to move into collective living. Well, they don't. They tend to stay in their homes. So the level of turnover in housing that is required for people to be able to achieve affordable housing isn't, isn't happening in the market. So the only thing you can do is increase the supplies of housing, which takes time. And the level of acceleration that we've seen in immigration is way beyond our, our housing capacity to keep up. That's going to cause the pushback. Yeah, for sure. I saw a headline, you know, as many of us have seen recently because of rising interest rates uh, and lockstep with inflation, all these headlines regarding the coming crash of housing prices in Canada. And as we know, it's been an inflated asset for so long. Absolutely. Young people can't afford a home. Most have no prospect ever of owning a home. And yet, as you point out, we look at 500,000 people coming to this country every year. Where are we going to put all those people? It's difficult to see housing prices going down anytime soon because of that. And we know that 90% of those people move to a major metropolitan area. So yeah. we talk about, you know, Canada being a big country and having lots of spaces for, for new people. Well, the truth is 90% of them move to major metropolitan areas, the CMAs.
with people living so much longer and also living healthier, where you know the phrase or variation of the phrase that's used sometimes is that you know 65 is the new 45, perhaps, or the 70s is the new 50. There was an effort by Stephen Harper's government when he was prime minister to increase the retirement age from 65 to 67. That subsequently got rolled back, I think, by Justin Trudeau. Uh, I watched what happened in France. I'm sure you did too, with all the riots surrounding the French prime minister's move, which he pushed through in the end to raise the retirement age from 62 to 64, and enormous wide-scale public protests against the very thing, despite the fact that those retirement ages were established at a time when people could expect to live maybe a few years beyond that and then dutifully shuffle off the planet, so to speak. And now people are living 30 years beyond, 25 or 30 years beyond established retirement age, but there's huge public protests that come into play when we try and change that. And so, you know, as part of, perhaps as part of the solution, we are going to have to take a hard look at what we do with that and move the retirement age to not just 67, but perhaps higher than that, don't you think? Yeah, the um, and not to, to be cast dispersions on the, on the Trudeau government, but I would say the single most expensive, silliest thing they did when they came to power was exactly what you just said. All the fighting had already taken place under the Harper government. It was over. There was no big call for doing the rollback. They simply did it because the other guys made another decision. Right. And that's one of the things that uh, you know I wish our politicians would get over. Um, is the idea that uh, everything that the other guys did was dumb yeah. um, and that we, you have to change it. This was what the right thing to do for the country to make that change. And that the Trudeau government uh, came in and did it was just shows how capricious they were about uh, about um, how they regarded what was going on with the um, you know, future of the Canadian economy and our ability to, to maintain pensions in this country. It was just a, it was a, it was a really silly thing to do. And there's no other way to describe it than that. Yeah. And uh, at some point, somebody's going to have to take on the hard work that Stephen Harper uh, and the conservatives did to get get that to the right place. And yeah, at some point, it's going to have to probably increase even more than it is today. But uh, you've got that fight back on your hands simply because the liberals decided that whatever the previous government did had to be wrong. Yeah. So, Daryl, I just want to pivot um, because of the context of our show. I want to pivot to uh, just uh, in the last uh, minutes here to what this will mean for our kids. So for kids born today, um, given the predictions that you cautiously make in your book, what do you think the world will look like for a child who is born, say, in 2025, uh, who is 30 or 40 years old? What? Um, how can we set them up You know, to have a bit of a positive spin on this? How can we set them up to succeed and thrive in a world that will be quite different than the one that we live in today? Uh, I think the first thing is that everything work-related will probably be better for them because there'll be less competition. Yeah, uh, there are fewer young people as a as a part of our population. So I think everything that's work related will probably get better for them. Um, uh, anything that has, you know, if, if you came in in the tail end of the baby boom like I did in the workplace, and <laughs> you were completely dominated by everybody who was in that generation, you know what it was like. Um, it's not going to be like that for our kids, and to the same degree. Uh, but the big problem that they're going to have is this overhang of expense that relates to the aging of the population. And unless somebody can figure out another way of paying for it than the way that we're paying for it now, the tax burden on the younger generation could be considerable. 
And as a, real, a result of that, there's going to have to be a lot of hard choices that are going to be made about things like, for example, pensions, healthcare, education, a whole series of big ticket social policy areas that governments are engaged in, but even things like defense. I mean, how much are we prepared to spend on, on defense? I mean, uh, given that we've got, you know, a million people who have Alzheimer's and need care. So the burden from a social policy and taxation perspective is going to be considerably on the younger generation. And I suspect that there's going to be a pretty uh, strong fight to start taxing more than income, but more like assets. Right, because all of the assets actually sit with the elderly population, not with the younger population. So, um, yeah, there's going to be a potential for some pretty strong generational conflict. Yeah, and, uh, and, and, and so over and time, so, and so many of those assets, as you say, that sit with the older population, many of those assets are doing exactly that. They're sitting there. And, yeah, uh, the older people tend to be hoarders. I mean, they tend to believe that they're going to need, in many instances, more than they do need. To meet all their needs to the end of their lives and 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 uh um they they, they tend to hoard those things now uh, the one thing i hear a lot of from people in the financial sector is oh there's going to be this big wealth transfer i don't think it's going to be as big or as fast as people think right i think a lot of that money is going to eventually end up having to pay for some of these healthcare costs and some of these other things and governments are going to get more creative about how they deal with assets right speaking of which you know historically always the innovation and creativity does tend to be disproportionately sprung from our younger population. And I think you make the point in the book that so much of the innovation that's happened in the internet age and in the computer industry and technology has sprung from Silicon Valley, you know, the young, smart, up-and-comers and so on. And it, it, it stimulates an interesting thought. You know, if you look at the history of mankind and the outstanding innovators, the artists, the leaders, individuals who have clocked in sort of later in their family's birth order. And I referring to people like uh, you take um, Thomas Edison, even he was the seventh of seven children, the inventor of the light bulb, uh, you know, most classically it, Canadian examples like Celine Dion, you know, the, the songstress, she was the 14th of 14 children. And, and to uh, again, use a political angle here, former liberal prime minister, Jean Chrétien, I think he was the 18th of 19 children. And so one of the comments that gets made around this topic is, if we are having family sizes of zero or one, maybe two, um, who is going to be responsible for those light bulb moments? Can we look to a future where we have less good ideas because we have less youth, less innovation, less creativity? Well, there was a, a, an economist at Stanford. Uh, I think his name is Charles Jones, who wrote an article about this. It's, it's a lot of calculus, so I wouldn't necessarily suggest you go right. and, uh, and read it. But uh, they did a very good uh, precy of it in The Economist. Um, and uh, uh, his argument, he called, it the, he called it the empty planet result. So he read Empty Planet. I had no idea that he was going to read it. And he wrote, took, took that and basically calculated or what John Ibbotson and I were arguing and calculated what a future would look like. And he said, well, there's really three directions the world can go in. One is that, um, uh, you know, the population can continue to expand at an excessive rate. So we get back on track with fertility and the population goes way up, uh, bad for the planet, uh, probably good for the economy because there's lots of consumption and that's what drives our economy, but also lots of innovation because there's lots of young people. And then he said, there's the one that's the most popular uh, version of things, which is the, we all get to replacement rate and everything's very steady and slow. And, and, you know, we, we continue to have some innovation and we continue to have, uh, you know, some economic growth, but uh, not as robust as maybe we've seen in the past. And he said, that's a myth. 
Right. And then the third one is the one that's more like what we're talking about an empty planet, which is we peak and we start to decline. And once the decline stops, I'm not saying it hits terminal velocity, but it's, it accelerates just as it on the way up, it goes up fast and on the way down, it comes down fast. And which is a really big problem in terms of economic growth, because there's less consumption for fewer people, but also most importantly, there's fewer younger people and younger people are the innovators. So the economy will suffer because we have fewer consumers because old people don't consume the same way. And we'll have fewer innovators. And I think he's on to something. Yeah. Uh, on the uh, other hand, related to that, perhaps because there's less young people, young people are more impulsive. Again, this is uh, something you touched on briefly. Perhaps there's less, to use your word, I think in your book, perhaps there's less hotheads. Perhaps the world will be a more peaceful place. Yeah, the geriatric piece. And uh, there's an academic in the U.S. Who, who wrote about this. And it's an interesting theory. I, was, uh, I did a presentation at the NATO Staff College in Rome. And this was the topic. Uh, so I was talking about demographic change and I had a, a German um, uh, academic who was on just before me and he was talking about um, the best predictors of violence between states. And it was excessive numbers of young men. Yeah. Surplus young men and their population was a good predictor. Now, I'm not saying he's right or I'm not saying it's wrong. It's an interesting, an interesting theory. Well, you're not going to have that in very many places. Uh, going forward. I mean, for a time, for the time being, you're going to have it in places like Nigeria in Africa. You're definitely right. going to have that. But in places like Europe, um, you can see two geriatric sites, uh, uh, states duking it out, at, you know, between Ukraine and Russia. Both of them are in demographic disasters. Both of them are losing population. Ukraine lost seven and a half million people immigrated out of uh, or left as refugees out of uh, out of Ukraine, and a big chunk of them will may not come back even after the war ends. Right. And Russia was already in population decline before this thing started, and they're ki killing off an entire generation of fathers. Yeah. Um, so, tragic. so you are going to see these kinds of situations, but unstable states are difficult states. And when states are going through demographic change, they can be problematic. And China is the one that's going to go through the biggest demographic change this century. Um, so we should we need to be worried about China, because disruptive uh, uh, authoritarian regimes or dis disrupted authoritarian regimes tend to be dangerous authoritarian regimes. Well, you added in China in particular the disastrous effects of their one-child policy, which was skewed heavily toward the birth of boys rather than girls. I think it was 1.2 to one, uh, rather than the usual. No, no it's way, you know, or perhaps no, more than that. It's um, like a 1.4 in some reason. There, yeah. there, uh, the, 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 the couple of quick things on China, they're going to lose half their population this century. So 700 million people. That's yeah. two United, two United States plus this yeah. century. Um, even if they wanted to turn it around, they're missing 30 million women from their population. Right. Crazy. And even if they had, looking at the, the 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 women that are left that are potentially uh, able to have children or maybe a second child or a third child they have a very very high rate of sterilization you were talking before about birth control when people think about birth control they tend to think about it in a, a kind of a western sort of way which is uh you know condoms or uh you know uh, oral uh, contraceptives or iud's or or other things in many parts of the world china included the most popular form of of contraception is sterilization yeah just Both like men in, and in, women in brazil too i think you lay out in some detail yeah in, and, in other countries yeah, yeah so it, even if they wanted to turn it around they lack the population to be able to do it it's 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 too late for china yeah the only question is how fast it's all going to happen
Yeah. So in, in China and, and Brazil, that is the actual mechanical cause of what you have. I think you wrote a Globe Mail article not too long ago where you talked about the low fertility trap. Once yep. we are in this position, countries have tried all kinds of things. Sweden has, Singapore has, South Korea has, China has tried to turn this around, but it seemingly can't be done. It can be slowed down, but it can't be reversed. And the reason is because it becomes a sociological norm. Do you, do you uh, see any do you see any sociologic tools that we can use say here in Canada North America where we can you know your book is such an important one because at least it's starting the conversation and bringing these right. issues into the light so that we can look at this thing and start to talk about it transparently are there tools that we can use so that we can begin to understand that actually having a family of some size is a good thing there's no magical solution uh, there's no single solution I think that, you know, there's natalist movements on both the left and the right. Uh, and the left natalist movement, even though it's not necessarily pro-large families because they're worried about the climate, is that it's all about women's equity and it's all about, uh, you know, accessible, quality, free childcare. It's all about, uh, you know, benefits that are associated with, the uh, state benefits that are associated with, with having kids. Well, the problem is, the countries that have done the best job of that, mostly the Nordic countries, are all below uh, fertility, all below replacement fertility rate and declining. And then you've got other countries, say, for example, Hungary is going to be a, a big experiment on this, which is more of a right approach, which is very strong traditional family approaches, which is we're going to pay you to stay home and have kids, like excessive baby bonus type things. Uh, uh, they've nationalized their IV, IVF clinics, and they look at them as being national assets now. Yeah. Right. Um, they're state assets. So they're trying to create um, a, 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 a situation in which women, in, in, in maybe in some dangerous ways, are, are uh, I don't want to say forced, but, but pushed in the direction of having larger families. Well, uh, there's been some uptick in fertility in Hungary, but it's not been huge. I mean, they haven't got themselves back to replacement rate. So we get into this, you know, real excessive kind of natalist type of debate in which all of these incentives can be tried or, uh, you know, on either the right or the left, and neither has really been successful. The only thing I think that we can say is that uh, if you make it possible for all the people who want to have kids to have kids, if we see this as more of a, um, a community activity and something that's a benefit, a benefit to the world rather than a burden, and we change the, the cultural thinking around this, we may be able to slow it down. In some instances, we may be able to move it up a little bit, but um, we're going to be living with the consequences that we put in place uh, over the space of the last 40 or 50 years for the next, the rest of this century. Yeah. Um, and it can happen a little faster or a little slower, but it's going to happen. Yeah. Now, perhaps worth saying one thing I really admire about how you closed out, uh, how you and John closed out your book is with a uh, nod to humility stating yeah. in essence that all predictions should be attended by perhaps heaping boatloads of humility in the sense that you know yeah. just, just as just as Malthus and uh, Ehrlich were uh, gloriously wrong we all have the capacity to be wrong on some level I hope that you're wrong I I suspect based on the enormous amounts of evidence that you've accumulated in the cases that you presented that you're not wrong um but but even so proceed with a, a little bit of caution oh Ed, no but Ed, we're, we are wrong I'll tell you, absolutely, we were wrong. Um, everything that we were talking about in the book is happening faster than we said. 
right? Yeah, I hear you. So, so we're, yeah. we we were absolutely wrong, and and uh, you know we went with uh, the more mainstream projections that suggested that China's decline wouldn't start till the 2030s. Well, the Chinese government declared it started this year, seven, you know, almost a decade earlier than we thought. Uh, you know that. We were thinking that uh, the Indian birth rate um, was going to start to decline, you know, the end of this decade or beginning of the next decade. Well, no, India last year announced that it had fallen below replacement rate. So everything is happening faster than we said. So yeah. we were absolutely wrong. Yeah. So enormous, enormous challenges ahead for sure. But, you know, as we just uh, mentioned, the best way, really the only way to meet those challenges is first to acknowledge that we have a problem. Uh, and then begin to talk about it intelligently and transparently and brainstorm for solutions, you know, mankind, humankind, if I can use the people kind to use the more politically correct term these days. Uh, uh, just for I, one, just for one guy. Just for <laughs> one guy has always been uh, amazingly resilient. It'll be fascinating, at least as a social observer, to see how this all plays out in the next decades, for sure. Uh, you and I probably won't be around to see the full implications of what's transpired, but our children certainly will. And that's really why I wanted to talk about this for our listeners, because, you know, what, what we are interested in doing is painting a picture for our listeners, for our parents, and how to prepare their kids uh, for the realities that are coming without scaring them, but also um, having them be fully apprised of what the realities are. And to deny what those realities are is simply silly. I couldn't have said it better. So the book is uh, Empty Planet, The Shock of Global Population Decline, authored by yourself and uh, John Ibbotson. John is a columnist at the Globe and Mail. I think that's his main... Uh, he's a, he's of... a book writer and a very prolific book writer. Yeah, and uh, I... he's got a new book coming out, actually, in uh, the fall called... Uh, what's it called? Uh, Duel. And uh, John writes on uh, a lot of different issues, but this one's about... Uh, Pearson and Diefenbaker and how they kind of grew up together and what their similarities were and how their paths crossed and how they influenced each other. I can't wait to read it. Fascinating stuff. And uh, thank you so much for joining us. Really, truly a pleasure to have you on the show today. Uh, thank you so much. And uh, hopefully we'll cross paths again in the future. Thanks again. And, and I should say thank you, Ed, for all that you do. I mean, being in a, an emergency room physician is uh, is the most important work I think just about anybody can do. And I'm I'm very pleased to be on your podcast and, and great to hear that uh, the people that where you live are in such good hands. That's great. Thank you so much. I appreciate you saying that. Take care, Daryl. Thanks. Wow. What a tremendously interesting conversation. Sobering stuff for sure, but undeniably important information for all of us going forward, not least those of us with young families today, uh, as we try to sketch out uh, their futures, as well as our own, and to prepare our kids for a world quite unlike the one that we have all known. I think you throw in the rapid rise of artificial intelligence, and it's fair to say this planet is going to be a radically different space than the one that we've all uh, inhabited up until now. So great information from Daryl Bricker and John Ibbotson. They've done us a tremendous service by shining a bright light on these issues. Uh, and what's the old saying? Uh, forearmed is forewarned. But I have to say that overall, I'm optimistic. Humans are pretty ingenious as a species after all. And uh, despite our many difficulties historically, we've always managed to survive and to find a way through and really to thrive. And uh, I'm optimistic that in the years ahead, despite the clouds on the horizon, will prove once again that humankind is enormously resilient and 
endlessly resourceful. Uh, so that's all for our show today. Uh, on our next episode, we'll be getting back to something that is uh, undeniably more relevant to the here and now, and that is the issue of bullying in kids. We interview Lisa Dixon-Wells, the founder and head of the national anti-bullying organization called Dare to Care. That episode is titled, Battered and Bruised, The Risk of Bullying. We hope you'll join us, and thank you again for listening. Take care for now. Thank you for listening to Cloudy with a Risk of Children. A summary of today's episode can be found at riskofkids.substack.com. We'd love some feedback. Send us your comments or ideas you'd like to see us explore on future shows. You can reach us at feedback at riskofkids.com. That's feedback at riskofkids.com. Please support our podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Your input helps us make the show even better, points us to topics that are relevant to you, and helps us reach new listeners. Again, thank you for listening, and we hope you tune in next time. Until then, remember, kids are like boomerangs. They're wonderful to hold, but they're meant to fly. The views expressed on this show should not be taken or construed as personal medical advice. For individual medical opinions, please consult your own doctor. Cloudy with a Risk of Children is a Studio D podcast production.